0: hell yeah yeah Yo, you know what it is it's a hundred and fifty thousand degrees outside <laughs> it's the summer of this is it's the summer of 2019 You know what what I'm doing, though? That's pretty shitty. shitty. What are you you doing? doing? Making it summer 69, baby. You know what I'm saying? Nice. Talking about sex.
1: What episode is this?
0: Number 69, baby. I know. Nice. You know what's funny? Uh,
1: uh, Just yesterday, Piecing It Together episode 69 came out. God's sake,
0: tell me something that's funny. Just one time in your fucking (laughs) life. (laughs) <laughs> tell me one funny thing just I think one. everybody
1: is at home just in stitches right now about what I just said so
2: yeah. you know what
0: so Fuck piecing you. it together Fuck. episode number 69 that's that's pretty cool um, yeah that's the kind of comedy that you're going to find on this show I'm Q and I'm Jewish Dave oh did I lose you?
1: <laughs> yeah but I'm back it, it was be- gone baby gone <laughs> <laughs> it's it's gone, gone baby, gone
0: It is gone baby, gone <laughs> And I'm
1: Jewish Dave I am the captain now
0: <laughs> And this is Bird Road So how's
1: it going, how was the live show?
0: <laughs> Don't patronize me
1: Hey, I'm not, I'm always excited. I was excited I, li- I listen to the whole thing You
0: listen to, you think that like That that is somehow redeeming, that you listened to a podcast. Well,
1: it shows that I care. It shows that I care.
0: It was great. Um, If you want to check back, it's uh, the most recent episode before this one. The End of Miami was a rousing success. I want to thank um, everybody that participated in the show. Jerry Ionelli, Keelan Bishop, and also uh, to Jeff Campbell. Thanks a lot for coming out. You guys can, if you didn't make it out, you can listen to it now on the feed. So check it out. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram, not on Facebook. We don't do Facebook. That's just for lames. Um, You can email us at birdroad at allpointswest.net. Call us at area code 305. This is weird that we still have this phone number. Area code 305 792 8971 i don't know leave a message i haven't checked i think we have messages but i haven't checked if you if we haven't played your message bear with us we're it'll be on the next one we're madly incompetent 305-792-8971 dave what's going on over on um on on piecing it together today and also i think we also have other podcast news in the all points west universe right
1: That's right. Well, uh, I'm piecing it together. We have a whole bunch of new movies uh, that we're covering. And also we've got a special uh, top 10 of the year so far at the halfway point uh, with uh, film critic Josh Bell. That's coming up next week. And also coming up next week uh, is the launch of Awesome Movie Year, a new podcast here on All Points West that I am producing that is hosted by Josh Bell and comedian Jason Harris, who was on our first uh, live bird road show. And, uh, the introduction episode is going up actually, uh, right now. If you go check it out on Apple podcasts, everywhere that you listen to bird road, and you can also check out awesome dot And the uh, first full episode will be up next week. What the show is, is a deep dive into a movie year each season. We're starting off with 1994, and we've got 12 different categories for each year that we're going to cover. And so that way it fills in nicely with 12 set movies um, that fill in each of those categories. And uh, we got categories like Best Picture Winner, uh, Biggest Box Office, Future Cult Classic, uh, Movie from a First Time Filmmaker. Who went on to be a big filmmaker? Things like that, and '94 uh, is just a great year in movies, and so there's a lot to cover. Um, and we're already planning our next couple of seasons, so we're gonna have a lot of uh, a lot of great shows over there on Awesome Movie Year.
0: It's so like invigorating to hear you talk about something that you're interested in. <laughs> hey, I said I was excited about the live show. All right, we're gonna go j- jump to our interview now. We uh, got a hold of hamilton nolan from splinter news to talk about a uh, local labor issue at the local community college here which is not really a community college it's just a college a two-year university or a two-year i don't know whatever a college i don't know what the fuck to call it they don't want to call themselves a community college dave i don't know i don't know how to make everybody happy in this situation so let's go to the interview it sounds like a
1: lose-lose
0: So we're a Miami podcast. We asked you on to talk about one of your latest pieces from last week. Um, It's called the title is Revenge of the Poverty Stricken College Professors is underway in Florida. And it's big for um, anybody out there who I know we have some listeners here in the Miami DSA. Uh, We've been talking about this issue for a long time. It's great that it's finally getting some traction. And I guess I just wanted to ask, like, from your perspective, how did this story land on your radar? because it's not just about Miami, it's broader with respect to the adjunct faculty throughout the state, but h- how did you find out about this?
3: Right, so when I was at Gawker, I did a series on adjuncts and I heard a lot of horrible uh, stories from people all over the country. So I knew that you know adjuncts were always kind of interesting to me because they're I kind of see them as the, the highest educated, low wage workers in America. Um, but what really caught my eye about the Miami situation and the Florida Uh, adjunct campaign was um, I saw some small stories uh, when they were winning some of the uh, union votes down there and the numbers just astounded me like when I saw that they had won um, a campaign at Miami Dade College with 2,800 adjuncts I mean that's a that's a huge number Um, and the kind of eye-popping numbers that they were getting in Florida caught my eye and uh, being from Florida And being aware of how hard it is to organize in the state of Florida and what kind of place Florida is and the sort of political climate in Florida uh, made those numbers that much more impressive to me. And so that's what really uh, caught my interest about it.
0: Yeah. And you mentioned how big these numbers are, particularly at Miami-Dade. I think, um, you know, just researching the interview I saw for this interview, I saw that college enrollment has increased 27 percent since 2000, which is like the year that I got into college. Mm-hmm. And I, you would expect that the full-time staff would have increased in lockstep. And that's not the case, right? Because of these, the rise of this adjunct staff designation, which is, I kind of liken it to like the bastardized version of being like a 1099 contractor, where it's just kind of a way for an organization to not have to treat you like a full-time employee. Like what, what is it to be an adjunct fa- faculty member, just for those who don't know?
3: yeah i mean an adjunct faculty member is is basically a part-time uh, tenuous um, college professor you know i think in the in the popular imagination you know people who maybe aren't uh well acquainted with the kind of academic job market just think that people become college professors and it's a full-time job like any other job and the reality is that um, full-time college professors are a minority at um, a lot of these schools especially these these sort of community colleges and even state colleges and the majority of the professors um, in these schools are adjuncts which means they are just hired uh, for a semester and then laid off at the end of the semester and then rehired again for the next semester. So they're very like tenuous, um, not full time, uh, professors who are expected to do the same work as uh, full time professors are, you know, in, in many cases, I think students at colleges don't really have any idea whether their professor is adjunct or not. Um, But the working conditions are so much worse for adjuncts than for full-time professors and also the pay is something like half.
0: Yeah, you mentioned in in the article like uh, some of the subjects and the people that you talk to is a woman who has a medical doctorate but who's who's been at Broward College for 10 years and is making $18,000 a year. Um, Another person, another woman who lives in Clearwater makes about $11,000 a year and she's crippled by her own student loan debt that she you know that she incurred mm-hmm. to get to this point um is, is what else like give us the contour of like who these folks are because i think like you said there's misperceptions that they're do-gooders or independently wealthy or something like right. that or maybe they have wealthy spouses that are just you know letting them pursue this dream of theirs but that's not the case
3: no, not at all, and it's it's pretty interesting because you know the story of the adjunct um, academic job market is similar in a lot of ways to uh, a lot of other industries where you know people talk about the gig economy and there's um, this sort of there's this sort of false uh, happy narrative of the gig economy, which is hey, we're going to give you all this freedom, you know, it, it gives you the freedom to pursue your dreams and you can do these jobs on the side and it really opens up your life. Um, when the reality for a lot of people is that these are people who very much want a full-time job and a career and all they are able to get are these gig economy jobs. And that goes for academia as well. You know, so, um, I, I met many, many adjuncts down there, um, who, you know, routinely they would say, um, I started adjuncting to get a foot in the door, you know, I I really saw it as just a stepping stone to a full-time academic position. Um, And only after doing this adjuncting for a number of years did it start to become clear to me that, uh, you know, landing that full-time job was kind of a mirage. And when you kind of uh, listen to the numbers of the academic job market, you know, you can see that there are not enough um, full-time college professor jobs in America for all the, the people that are being churned out with higher degrees. And so, to a certain extent, um, what you see is that academia, is a, it's a little bit of a pyramid scheme because uh, people, in a lot of cases, take on all this student debt in order to get those higher degrees with the idea that they're gonna become uh, college professors they get out of school with this degree and with a lot of debt, and they uh, begin teaching, um, hoping to get that full-time job. They can't get the full-time job. They have to keep their foot in the door, and in order for them to have their own teaching job, they have to, you know, almost be complicit in this system of recruiting more and more people to come and try to get these higher degrees. So, I mean. The entire system is out of whack, um, and and I really think that anybody who's considering a, pursuing a PhD or considering um, going into academia as a job should really take a hard look um, at the reality of the job market out there.
0: I was uh, interested when I was reading about sort of how this success, though, in the unionization efforts. Cascaded south because it's already had some, you know, the SEIU has already had some pretty um, considerable success in, in other colleges throughout Florida. Talk mm-hmm. about what happened though, what the 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 resistance they butted up against when they came down to Miami Dade.
3: Yeah, so they they, as you said, had had some success uh, in Florida. They had a big campaign at Broward College um, and organized I think about 1,700 uh, adjuncts at Broward um, successfully, and did not run into too much of an anti-union campaign um, at Broward. And when they got to Miami-Dade, and, and by the way, they won the vote at Broward by more than 90%, so more than 90% of the adjuncts voted yes for the union at Broward. And it bears
0: noting, like, just for our listeners who aren't in Florida, when we talk about Broward College and Miami-Dade College, these are enormous institutions, like, probably bigger than any co- than the college that you went to. Like, at one point, Miami-Dade was the largest school of higher, higher education in the country, I think that was eight or nine years ago. But it's still enormous, so is Broward
3: yeah and i mean i think miami-dade last i checked said it had one hundred and sixty-five thousand students so it's it's yeah they're they're huge and multiple campuses throughout the city and um but you know when seiu went into miami-dade to to organize it um miami-dade i I don't know if they if they took a cue from (laughs) from broward or not but they did in fact run an anti-union campaign um you know which includes uh commonly like a lot of emails, uh, sent out to adjuncts saying, uh, scaremongering about what is going to happen if the union comes in. There were, uh, letters, personalized letters sent to these adjuncts home with sort of big warnings about, uh, what the union is going to do. And, um, and you know, the effect of that was, that they just barely, barely squeaked by and won the election um, at Miami-Dade. I mean, just more than half um, compared to 90% at Broward. And, you know, it's a, a funny thing about the anti-union campaign at, at Miami-Dade and also at, at several of the other schools in Florida as well is that, um, you know, these adjuncts say, uh, the school will send us these messages and say, you know, the union is gonna come in and interfere with, the relationship that we have, and they're like, what relationship are you talking about? Like, you've, I've never heard from you before this, like I can't, you know, I can't get anybody to clean my classroom, I can't get I can't get my emails answered, I can't get anything out of this school. But suddenly, once there's a union campaign, it's like there's a sacrosanct relationship that the schools want to protect.
0: Yeah, it's. Um, I think among the people here in Miami who are familiar or have attended Miami Day specifically, that it's a bureaucratic hellhole. It's just like you would expect a hundred and sixty-five thousand-person enrollment school to be. It's not there. There aren't personal relationships happening, but it's funny that that comes from the old, like, sort of union-busting playbook of you know, sidle up to the uh, to, to the workforce and um, try to play on the heartstrings. But yeah, in your in your article, I thought it was funny that there weren't any heartstrings to play on because they'd never bothered to build any kind of relationship with the people, with the people that work for them.
3: Yeah. I mean, and that's uh, hey it's a good thing about union campaigns. I mean, nothing will, nothing makes your employer care about that relationship more than um, the idea that you might have a union. So, but obviously at, 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 these schools, it was too late for all that. I mean, there's people who've been there for 10 years, 15 years um, suffering under these conditions and, <laughs> We're not about to be dissuaded by one email.
0: So now that makes Miami Dade College the in in your article, you you tag it as the largest adjunct collective bargaining unit in the country now. And you've got this sort of collective movement, some solidarity from here all the way up to you mentioned Hillsborough College and other upstate schools. Um, Where does the momentum go from there? I mean, is this something that gets tackled? collectively as, you know, one big statewide institution, Mm -hmm. or is it like a bunch of skirmishes being fought in different counties?
3: Yeah. I mean, I guess, I guess the, you know, the short term reality of any labor organizing is it's a series of short term skirmishes, but I think that, um, SEIU, uh, and, and faculty forward, which is their higher education organizing branch, Um, you know, they're clearly looking at it as a statewide campaign and, and really as a national campaign. I mean, it's, it's, and it's hard work, you know, it's, it's one of those things where, um, the adjuncts, uh, in Florida and, and elsewhere too, I think, but definitely in Florida realize that, um, the roots of their problem, are not just with their individual schools. You know, uh, a big part of their problem is state funding. You know, if the states cut funding to higher education or if they don't continue to increase funding to higher education, you know, the easiest place for those schools to cut ends up being on the backs of the adjuncts. And so a lot of the adjuncts will say, you know, the real solution to to the problem we face is us getting together with the full-time faculty And with the administration and going to Tallahassee and saying, look, you know, we are a political force and we're a force to be reckoned with and you need to properly fund higher education. You know, that's the kind of big picture solution. Um, Unfortunately, you know, tell that to the administration, right? I mean, the administration is busy running anti-union campaigns and um, the, you know, even the, the full time faculty at these schools, which a lot of a lot of the full-timers have their own unions at, at some of these schools, a different union from the SEIU, um, you don't really see a lot of uh, coordination between the full-time faculty even uh, you know standing up and saying, we're going to use our position to help the adjuncts because we're all one group in reality. Um, and that, again, is something that's replicated in a lot of industries, um, where it's it's like crabs in a pot. As there's dwindling resources, everybody starts to fight with each other. But um, I do think that the adjunct campaign in Florida is is definitely being looked at as a statewide campaign. The numbers they're getting are big enough to, to make it a credible um, statewide campaign, an incredible political force. And I think that you know, in the coming years, you're going to see the same thing across America because adjuncts everywhere are really in the same boat.
0: I mean, it's hard, though. It's it's kind of hard to get public support, I think, because even in this moment, right, with a lot of other industries, fast food, for example, you look at fast food and there's an executive class and a shareholder class who are raking in, you know, millions of dollars. The same problems, like there, there's not that easy sort of ready-made class of villains here mm-hmm. because... You know, at the most, it's a public. I mean, I guess who's really siphoning off the most money in Florida? Like the football coaches, I guess. Like, there's not really a lot of people who you can who you can point to who are like, okay, these people are grossly overpaid. Where's the money going? And that kind of dovetails a little bit with my next question, which is, like, what are the what would be the demands of this huge collective group of adjunct faculty? Is it to become full time professors or to at least get considered more often for that? Or is it just as simple as, you know, I need a raise. What, What are they looking for?
3: Yeah. I mean, some of the most basic things that they talk about really wanting are, um, equal pay for equal work. You know, um, there's, there's adjuncts who are teaching who are doing the exact same job as full time professors. I mean, they're doing the exact same job and they're getting half the pay. So right there, um, People want equal pay. Whether they'll get that uh, or not, I don't know, but they'll, they'll certainly get some kind of pay improvement. Um, they want, uh, you know, scheduling is a big issue because people are literally laid off after every single semester. And it's, you know, it's funny, I was talking to some of the adjuncts and it's, you know, you talk about the fight for 15 and, and you know, as bad as fast food workers have it, at least if you work at Burger King, um, you don't get laid off every four yeah, months. Every semester, you, know? yeah, <laughs> like, exactly. you at least like have a job that is stable, and the adjuncts don't even have that. I mean, they get laid off. Um, they have to reapply. They don't know what their schedule will be. And on top of that, full time professors can sort of steal their classes um, because they get priority. So you know, some kind of stability of scheduling, even if I think at Broward they were trying to bargain for uh, two year long schedules in advance to kind of give some level of life stability. Um, so basic, basic things to get, uh, you know, a decent job. I mean, people want to live in wage, man. You know, these people uh, these people said to me, a lot of people said, when when I calculate my earnings, um, when I take into account my commuting time and the time that I have to prepare for class and the time that I have to grade papers, you know they're earning less than fast food money. They're earning less than the Florida minimum wage in a lot of cases. Um, So people want a living wage. Um, And yes, they want a path to uh, full-time employment. They want better communication, I think, with the administrations of these schools. I mean, the reality is like adjuncts in a lot of places have been completely blown off. I mean, if if you think of the lowest the, the lowest of the low, like, level of disrespect, that's the way that these these uh, college professors have been treated by their schools. So a lot of their demands are, are somewhat basic, but they're all kind of geared toward um, being able to have a stable life with a living wage. And I think longer term um, and in the bigger picture, you know, they know that... Uh, the change has to be political. It has to come from Tallahassee. There has to be funding for higher education. If there's not funding for higher education, um, then a lot of these problems cascade.
0: Yeah, and it's a trope that we talk about a lot on the show here because you talk about Miami and listeners will remember we had um, Nucleus Shelton from the AFL-CIO who was talking about this huge perimeter that you can make around the the airport, Miami International Airport, where there are workers who are trying to organized to collectively bargain and get a living wage and you can't live within 10 miles of the miami international airport on anything less than 15 dollars an hour there aren't any there's nowhere to live like Mm -hmm. there's nowhere that you would be able to afford to live and a lot of that is similar in this struggle with you know specifically you know when i think about inter american campus and the the wolfson campus which are both pretty close to downtown and little havana yeah. And I mean these are expensive places and yeah you 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 talked about uh specifically one professor who I mean when when she factors in her gas money she's making like 5 dollars an hour or something like that.
3: Yeah, there were I talked to multiple people who said they chose not to teach classes because, you know, the the gas money would have cut their earnings so low that it really didn't make it worth it, you know. And I talked to another adjunct who commutes two and a half hours on the bus each way to, um, to teach class. So, you know, if she teaches a two hour class that comes with five hours of commuting on the bus. Um, and I, Which you is know, hell it's cool.
0: in Miami, forget it. They're, like for, yeah. for all intents and purposes, <laughs> public transportation doesn't exist in Miami. Like, yeah, don't even, don't rely on it for sure.
3: No, it's crazy. And it speaks to like, it, you know, it speaks to how much these people want to teach. I mean, a lot of these people are driven by love. I mean, this is like a passion. It's a I think I think education is a, a passion job for a lot of people, you know, it's, so it's not something as simple as saying, Well, why don't you go get another job? You know, this is a this is a dream that people have and it's a it's a calling that people have and it's a career also that people have spent ten years getting a PhD in order to prepare for. So When people have invested that much um, in being teachers, it's it's not easy for them to walk away from that.
0: So I know you got to go, but I want to ask you a one last question that sort of zooms out a little bit because we've seen a lot of and tomorrow night, actually tonight, by the time you're hearing this episode, we're going to see the first of the uh, what's bound to be, I think, um, like two to three thousand Democratic debates uh, over (laughs) the course of the next year and a half. And uh, the first one's gonna be right here, Miami, in um, the heart of Miami at the Adrian Arch Center. Lots of higher education focused policy plans that are kind of just getting thrown out into the wilderness and and gra- snapped up by the media cycle. Just the other day we had, um, Bernie Sanders came out and he has a plan to cancel, one, or a proposal to cancel $1.6 trillion in student debt, mm-hmm. uh, student loan debt, um, in your mind, how does this story and this sort of like this treatment of this underclass of professors connect with any of those proposals that you've seen out there?
3: Student debt is definitely part of the story, um, not only because the professors themselves have to take on student debt um, to take these jobs, which which essentially traps a lot of them, uh, but also their students are taking on this student debt to go to school. I mean, student debt has been on the rise for a long time. Um, and, and the students who go to these schools are, are taken on the same level of student debt um, and facing the same issues. So I think it, 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 it speaks to kind of how we view higher education in America. I mean, higher education should be viewed as a a public good, and and probably as an entitlement, I think it's the smart <laughs> the smart solution, and probably even economists will tell you that education is the best uh, investment that a government can make. Um, and 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 you know the the way really that adjuncts are tied in is that when there's not enough resources for higher education, there's going to be losers in the system, and in our current system, the losers are the students who come out with the student debt and the adjuncts um, who are who are the cheap labor that fuels this system. And so putting enough resources into higher education on a national level can cure both those problems at once, I think.
0: His name's Hamilton Nolan. You know him probably originally from his days at uh, the old gawker.com. Uh, now he's writing, he's a senior writer for Splinter News. Hamilton, thanks for coming on and talking to us.
3: Thanks a lot, man.
0: All right, Dave, bring us home.
1: Hey, that was a great interview, Q. Good job with that. Sorry I couldn't be there for it.
0: It's infuriating that um, you weren't there. So I just got back from. Uh, I was at a. Um, I was at a live taping for a podcast called Drilled. Have you ever heard Drilled? Or no? No, I haven't. Drilled is a podcast that is very interesting because what they do is they take a, like a true crime approach. They do, like, you know how popular those true crime podcasts are right now? Yeah, yeah. Like, high production value and, like, the, you know, the mysterious music playing and the... Totally. Yeah. So, they do that, but they do a true crime podcast about the oil industry. Like, and the fact that the oil the oil and gas industry and, you know, energy sector, like, that they knew about climate change...
3: Sure. Before yeah.
0: before it happened, you know, before before it really, you know, progressed so much. So they had a live episode, and they had one of the one of our former subject matter, uh, one of the show's former subject matters, topics of conversation, I suppose. Jay Inslee, Governor Jay Inslee from Washington, he um, he showed up and was sort of peddling his um, his very comprehensive climate plan, and. I don't know. The debates are tomorrow. I kind of wish you were in town here so that we could both, like, kind of crash them or something. I don't know. They're here in Miami, right. so it would be a lot of fun if you were here. Yeah, I know. And I guess he's going to get on there. They they let anybody who got 65,000 unique, uh, unique donors, even if they only donated a dollar apiece to the campaign, anybody with 65,000 donors is um, going to be... On the stage over the course of the next two nights, which, if you're hearing this podcast, it's tonight, Wednesday night, and Thursday night. I, then After that, they're going to go up to 130,000, and I doubt that a guy like Jay Inslee is going to get onto the debate stage after that. I think that they're going to trim the crop down to, you know, sure, the, yeah. the, the realistic people. But he was there. He was. It's weird to see these guys. I mean, like, the real. Po- I mean, you and I know, like, the dirtbag politicians, you know, like, not no... Like, the politicians that we know, the people that run for office and the people that we've had on the show, are actual real people. And they feel like real people and you're talking to them. But uh-huh. you forget about, like, the professional, like, pr- premium class politicians who... Right. are ...literally have, like, a twinkle in their eye and they look like their skin is made out of, like, <laughs> plastic or something. And they're just like, hi... Wonderful to see you. Thanks for that question.
1: And their handshakes are the perfect amount of firmness. They're like they're like not too hard, not too smooth. They're not even really
0: people. Um anyway, <laughs> Jay Inslee, we've talked about before all of his it, This is one of those things where it's like the sum is less than its parts because a guy like Jay Inslee has a lot of good parts to his climate proposal. He's comprehensive. Mm. He's got a lot of plans. He's got a lot of ideas, but what he doesn't have is a way to sort of change the the paradigm of the world and the, of of the of the nation specifically to bend it to being conducive to accept those policies or to implement them in the right way. Or I mean, there's a mm. million reasons that it, it's it's. I don't know how to explain it. I don't know what's a handy metaphor, but to just walk in. It's like you went to college for four years literally to learn how to, like your the entirety of your course load was about putting a widget in a hole, in a very specific <laughs> hole. And you show up on your first day of work out of college and the hole is, first of all, there's so much more to it than that. You have to fill out your new hire paperwork. Nobody told you about that. You have to get a parking space, but that's problematic. You don't even have a car. Because nobody told you you needed a car, and you're late. And there's so many other things that in the reality of the world that don't include the little widget that you have to put in the hole, and you are completely lost, and you just end up killing yourself. Or getting... (laughs) polling at one percent for eight months and then selling a book or you know something like that or becoming secretary secretary of interior for you know for joe biden you know like that's what you end up actually doing so anyway (laughs) i met jay Inslee tonight Uh, the podcast is great though (laughs) rigged is uh, rigged drilled is a really good podcast (laughs) fucked up the name rigged is rigged Rigged. would be a great name for a podcast if it's not already. it would be it could be about virtually any election in florida like any election in florida it could just be like it could be a series i'm proposing that we start a podcast called rigged and it's about i think it sounds great
1: I'm already picturing how I would make the music for it. It would would just
0: be (laughs) it boy, you better run to your mama now, like that. (laughs) Like that. (laughs) That's the Crime Town song, or it used to be. I don't know, but like Crime Uh, Town is like, it's got the perfect like I don't know what you call that, but just like butt rock, you know. It's yeah. not butt rock either. It's more like... It's HBO rock. It's like every HBO uh-huh. show has that song at the start of it. It's yep. like... Ready like
1: that. So, for
0: shit to go down. Yeah, oh man, it's on. It's fucking on. Speaking of being on, as I seamlessly transition again, I'm getting better at doing that. Mm-hmm. Speaking of podcasts that I listen to that I never talked to you about... Listen mm-hmm. to this podcast called Gangster Capitalism. You ever heard of it?
1: Nope.
0: So Gangster Capitalism is about the – it's an investigation into that recent scandal, the Varsity Blues scandal. You know what I'm talking about?
2: Yeah, yeah. We might have
0: talked about this before, but not the podcast. So Gangster Capitalism is is a look, like a deep dive into um, that whole issue because it goes way deeper than, you know, Lori Laughlin and uh, – whatever, whoever the other lady was. And it is actually a really fascinating story. And they go deep into, you know, the theories behind like, well, why should some people have privilege and should other people not? And how, what is a real meritocracy? What is it to actually make it into an institution like Harvard or, you know, in this case, Stanford or in this case, Southern Cal University of Southern California on merit, Mm -hmm. right? How do you divorce merit from privilege and yeah you know like because it's so in in uh, intertwined right like sure even if these kids are playing it by the book if their parents are playing it by the book there's still enormous inherent advantages and um so it dives into that and <laughs> came across this this episode where they have they brought on this kid from harvard And I'm already ruining it because I'm telling you he's a kid. What I wanted to do was just play the audio of, of be like, here is the guy, the person, the individual who's defending the concept of legacies. All right? So I'm going to play you this audio, Uh and I just want you to hear a couple minutes of it, okay? This is, just know, the whole story, this whole podcast, its um, its entire reason for existence is to explore... This concept of the rich, the wealthy, the elite being able to get their kids into places that the kids again meritocratically don't deserve to be in um, uh-huh. and then in true journalistic fashion they have to have like a voice of somebody trying to give you know give some meaning behind or, or some some credence to the idea that maybe there is <laughs> a good reason to do that but I just want you to hear this kid. But not everyone agrees.
2: Some believe that legacy is valuable. We have in American history a sort of tradition of this kind of thing. I mean, nobody was enraged at the concept of the Kennedys all having gone to Harvard. The Kennedys said, well, we're not just going to come in here and take things. We have some sort of sense of, uh, quote-unquote, noblesse oblige, which is even something that Harvard acknowledges now. It says that it doesn't want to train
0: This kid's fucking voice, dude. Do you hear this
2: voice? (laughs) That's Liam Warner, a rising senior at Harvard University.
0: Liam is an opinion columnist at Harvard Crimson. He sounds like Mr. Burns in training. And
1: earlier this year, an article in defense of life. He's
2: 22. People just say, well, it's just inherently better to have the (laughs) cross section of America, the world, whatever. I don't see a whole lot of justification there. This is a 22 year old man. Fixation on. Having sort of a representative sample of every racial and ethnic group you can think of, so that you can have sort of a—it's like sampling national cuisines or something. I've tasted this and this and this and this and (laughs) now I've tasted everybody. You don't have to be specially educated in how to talk to black people. You can just talk to people. (laughs) The primary goal (laughs) is not to have a racially diverse class. The primary goal is to have qualified people from all over the place, particularly from I think (laughs) from all over the (laughs) place.
0: Oh my god, that is
1: absolutely ridiculous.
0: That are out there in the world, twenty-two-year-old people out there in the world that sound like that. How does that make you feel?
1: That's so weird. He probably walks around in a robe all day.
0: I think he's also somebody who has a (laughs) cane. Yeah. (laughs) Or definitely, there are definitely more than one fedoras in his closet. (laughs) <laughs> and but not in the hipster way. He has like the checkered fedoras. I don't. Yeah, know. yeah. It's insane. He's of course a, uh, a bloodless, life sucking ghoul in training. Who's a um, opinion columnist at the National Review, <laughs> a twenty two year old opinion <laughs> columnist. My thing was this: I hear these people, little fucking goblins like this. And I I, I notice, like, I can't help but from my journalistic reporter days, I can't help but look into who they are. This is the thing that comes up a lot when i I always find myself doing this with the New York Times or with reporters who work at very prestigious places, members of the media who are like, or or people that are at think tanks, people that are in these very prestigious roles in Washington, Mm. D.C. usually or New York City. And I can't help but just do the most cursory check on them because fucking without fail, it's always, this is this is how it goes down. I'll see some like reprehensible opinion column from some like 33-year-old Sarah Lawrence graduate or some shit like that who is, I don't know, defending uh, child detention or some shit like that and uh, based on like so, like based on the most i don't know inane reasons and so i'll go to look her up and sure enough new york times like she got she got married 3 years ago and there was a write up in the new york times style section about it and where they were where they where the giveaway happens where the tell happens is at the very last line where it says who her who he or she's parents are and it's always uh-huh so-and-so chairman of the Ford Foundation or so-and-so chairman of the Alfred E. Sloan Foundation or some shit like that, they're all all the same child of privilege. And Dave, like privilege to a level that would make you blush as a child of privilege. Like like, these people are so far out of your league. And I mean, so here's my thing. I want to start a new bit on this show. Where we, we read these fucking terrible, horrible takes by these people. And uh-huh. I'm going to take 20, 30 minutes out of my day to go and actually background them. But not just Google them, but do real background searches on them. And do pull, pull like actual public records on who they are and what their family does and where they come from. Because here's the thing about this guy, this Liam Warner. And he reminds me of a lot of them. And I'm picking on a 22-year-old, which I don't care he's a grown-up he's an adult he knows what he's doing yeah 22 is an adult are you kidding me i was being held to ridiculously impossible standards when i was 22 everybody was like stop gambling stop doing drugs like that's insane and i was a, a baby i was a child so anyway so anyway i this kid had a lot of those telltale signs of being from obscene absurd privilege. and here's the first one of those sites. Yeah. when it's not immediately obvious in all of their bio information, like all the shit that you Google that that comes up on the first page of Google, if it's not mentioned, if it's conspicuously absent who their parents are, I'm talking about a 22 year old uh-huh. kid that was at a high-end prep school in Chicago funneled directly into Harvard, had classmates who were also funneled into Harvard from this, you know, very, very high-end Catholic prep school. If that information is conspicuously absent, there's a reason. And it's because of this myth of meritocracy where people want to appear as though they've made everything, achieved everything on their own steam so that they can go on podcasts and talk about how (laughs) getting... (laughs) <laughs> Maintaining <Yeah. laughs> the power structures that support legacy admissions into the Ivy League are, is actually a good thing. So I did a little bit of looking into this guy. And sure enough, his grandfather was a guy named, was, he passed away I think in 2009, a guy named Edward Duran. Um, Edward Duran was the...
1: The founder of Duran Duran?
0: Yes. <laughs> <laughs> No, he was a lifelong, very successful uh, CPA who ultimately became a 30-plus year member of the Chicago Board of Trade and Chicago Board Options Exchange. So this guy was Uh in that, like, uh, you know, the trade world of trades. I went to business school, but I don't really know anything about that world. Um, Yeah, yeah. Apart from that, it just makes me violently ill. Um, He was trading the (laughs) trades. He would find a thing and he would trade it. And the thing is this <laughs> it's money makes money money never sleeps um, greed is good greed is good yes jinx <laughs> Got me. Uh, I don't know he was <laughs> no but this guy was a fucking head like a a, 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 a a proto hedge fund guy right um, yeah, yeah so yeah no shit these people come from obscene wealth. Chicago northern suburb wealth. And uh, of course that this little fucking asshole is uh, is being interviewed on a podcast in favor of legacy admissions. And it reminded me, did you follow the story of the kid from down here in Florida who got his Harvard uh, admission revoked?
1: No. Was this just recent?
0: Yeah, this was like last week or... Yeah, last week. Oh, okay. Kyle yeah, Kashuv, who was one of the, okay, so he was one of the Parkland survivors, right? Mm. And uh, you you remember Parkland, right? I don't even know if you. I don't, yeah, know, how, yeah. I, I don't know how much you really even know of anything. I mean,
1: <laughs> not much of anything lately. But yeah, I mean, Parkland was back when I was still paying attention a little bit.
0: Yeah, you're gonna become even like real useless as you get like deep into this <laughs> podcasting world of. Like producing a hundred shows and like I, the one thing you had going for you is that you were paying attention to like news for a little while, but
1: Uh-huh.
0: Yeah. It's it's, <gasps> it's gonna get bad. I don't know. I, I mean it's just <laughs> gonna be me talking to myself.
1: <laughs> I think we, uh, I I think I'll be able to uh, there, a couple I, things I, to say. I here I, there.
0: I I, I <laughs> Kyle I'll find a couple things to say to you. Kyle Kashev is a kid who just graduated from Parkland High School. He was a survivor of um, the Parkland massacre from a year. Oh, my God. It was only like a year and a half ago. But uh, he was one of the major student activists who emerged from the tragic shooting. Unlike the other activists who sort of came to be really well-known, he is on the other side side of the political aisle. He's a hardcore right winger. Uh, oh, yeah. He, he, he doesn't blame... Um, he, he, well, I'll read it from the New York Times. Kyle Kashev stood out as a conservative defender of the Second Amendment, surrounded by classroom, classmates who were mobilizing for sweeping new controls on guns. He used that distinction to get meetings with the likes of President Trump and successfully push for what he believed would be more effective federal legislation to improve school security, and help detect potential threats of violence at schools as he proudly related in his admission essay to Harvard College. In the essay, he described hiding in a classroom closet during the February 2018 rampage in which 17 people were killed. He said he learned about the deaths of his classmates one by one and chose to devote himself to activism afterwards. Now, Harvard accepted him into into its freshman class briefly, but on Monday, this would have been Monday before last, Mr. Kashif revealed on Twitter that the university this month rescinded its admission offer over a trail of derogatory and racist screeds that it turned out Mr. Kashif, now 18, wrote as a 16-year-old student months before the shooting that would turn his high school into one of the most famous in the country. So he dropped a lot of N-bombs, and, if, and they talked to a bunch of people who knew this kid, like classmates and whatnot, and... Uh, they said that, like, basically the picture that emerged is well, not just, like, the kid who I think you and I all know, or at one point or another maybe even were, who are, like, shitty. Six, there's nobody worse in the world than a 16-year-old boy. Like, 16-year-old sure. boys are probably the, the absolute worst. 13 to 16. Males 13 to 16 are probably the, the worst. They should be locked away for four years. Right? <laughs> We should, we should be locked away from age 13 to 16 so we can't cause any damage. Still. this seems like a good plan. This has, and I'm interested to hear your opinion on this. This has sparked a debate. Anyway, it came out that this kid was like a total dick and everybody always thought he was a piece of shit and he was racist and very inappropriate. Not like that harmless but also harmful kind of racism where it's like the kid who's trying to get a reaction by, by using language but the kid who is rather like using the language and really feeling the sentiment behind it. Um, mm. So whatever, that's enough about that kid. But uh, like it sparked off this debate of what and how much, how and how much can you be punished for shit that you do when you're 16? And what's like the statute of limitations. And we're not talking about crimes, we're talking about socially bad things. We're not talking about anybody breaking a law. And we're not talking about hmm. the criminal justice system. We're not talking about being thrown in jail or the government coming down on you in any way.
3: Sure. But,
0: you know, can you have something prestigious that you accomplished taken away from you for something you did when you were 16? What do you think?
1: Well, I I honestly, I, my honest answer is I don't think it matters what I think because I think that the answer is yes, they're going to take stuff away from people for for doing socially you know wrong-minded things when you were younger i think that's just kind of you know where where things are i mean am i wrong in saying that
0: no but you do sound like you become way more accepting
1: yeah i mean
0: or like resigned. I, I i guess is maybe the right thing you were you were somebody who maybe a year ago would have not liked this who would have been like who would not right. have taken it in such right. stride it is easy when it happens to a piece of shit like this kid definitely is yeah Um. Yeah. but uh, and again calling kids pieces of shit I, I don't I, mind
1: <laughs> there's nothing wrong with that whatsoever no there's nothing wrong with that at 40 to call 16 year olds pieces of shit
0: kids can but, um... easily <laughs> be pieces of shit when they're 16 when they're absolutely. 18 absolutely um, when they're 8 but kids are human beings I, and I don't even know if I like I'm, look, I'm bringing this up and I don't even know if I agree with the premise that I'm putting out there Like, I don't even know if I agree that you know what everything you do everything you do is open to punishment is open to consequence I don't think mm-hmm. that you get to have anything consequence free just because you're 16 shit happens to kids shit, kids do shit Every day at age sixteen, that that has consequences to it.
1: Sure, the kids do
0: shit at age five that costs them their fucking life. Uh, Like, why why are we manufacturing some imaginary world where you can drop a million n bombs when you're sixteen and still get into Harvard? Like, yeah, dude, Harvard's probably not going to want you when they find out about that. Like, that's the thing that
1: I don't like is that there's no there's no line. There's no, there's nothing where you can say okay there, okay I can do this this and this and yeah it's not great but you know I'll probably be all right. There's no line. It could be the like the simplest thing. If like ten years from now people are really like mad about it or offended by it or or you know people consider it to be a bad thing, uh, then it's going to destroy you. you know, even if it wasn't that big of a deal back then.
0: Yeah, and the funniest thing, and I'm looking it up right now, but the funniest thing about this situation, actually, which, I mean, I feel like this, the mind recoils at how stupid this is. Um, So this kid, his... uh, Who do you think ran to his... You you can imagine the group that... And I don't want to paint them with a broad brush and just say they're conservatives. I think it's easier to, like the kids that, the people that came running to the defense of this kid are maybe just broadly, like, I don't know, like, Joe Rogan fans or something like that, right? Like, the that crowd, right? Mm. The conservative, libertarian, um, you know, like, free speech crowd, right? I don't want to say free speech crowd because that makes it sound like I'm outside of that crowd. Like, I'm not an advocate of free speech, which I totally am, but... Like speech does have consequences like you don't just get to say anything you want without having to defend it or or answer for it um so anyway it's a it's a largely conservative consortium of people who are blaming the uh you know the 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 snowflakes and the pc police and whatnot right. for getting this kid kicked out of or not even kicked out just his offer rescinded from from Harvard. But here's the funny yeah. shit. All of his horrible behavior and the messages and chat logs and shit that got leaked out and put out there were put out there by a bunch of conservatives who who because <laughs> of this sort of intra like intramural hatred that they have for like, these weird rivalries that they have with each other. It was Laura Loomer it was, I'm trying to find out who else it was. It was like, you know who Laura Loomer is? Laura Loomer, Laura Loomer is? <laughs> no. Uh... The, forces pressing for cash, the forces that were pressing for, this is from a Vox article from last week as well, um, Kyle Kashev on his Harvard crisis. I wish I could take it back. I can't. In the, in the Google Doc, a venue teens frequently use as an unmonitored digital chat platform Kashov typed a racial slur over and over, even bragging that I'm really getting good at typing the N-word, except he didn't write the N-word. Okay, like practice uh makes perfect. Te- <laughs> so I'm <laughs> laughing because you and I know fucking people like that. Um uh-huh. the text messages are arguably worse. He demeans a female classmate by saying she only goes for N word jocks, suggesting that she would prefer Uh, such black men sexually to a pasty Jew. Um, It's not clear from the screenshots what the context was for this. I can only imagine what the context was. So what I found interesting is that, no, it wasn't left-wing social justice warriors or whatever uh, snowflakes trying to get this kid kicked out. Far-right figures like Laura Loomer and Mike Cernovich helped push the story of Kashov's use of racist slurs, as did other conservative activists who argued that Casho's apology for his comments didn't go far enough. Cernovich has tweeted repeatedly about his belief in what in the white genocide conspiracy theory, and Loomer was barred from multiple social, plat, social media platforms for racist statements, making their newfound commitment to anti-racism somewhat dubious. And <laughs> that shit is funny to me because yeah it's like it's so it's that bad faith shit and eventually when people are arguing with you in bad faith they say like uh i feel like i heard andrew gillum who i think has been indicted but uh andrew gillum once like oh one of his favorite little tropes on the campaign trail is to say something like um my mama always told me or my grandma always told me don't wrestle with pigs because you just get muddy you both get muddy Mm -hmm. and the pig likes it or something like that i'm fucking it up (laughs) but um that's true man don't argue with people who are arguing with you in bad faith like why argue with them fuck them like right right. and that just shows you that like every all of the right all of the right is an exercise in bad faith arguments
1: yeah yeah basically it's just a it's almost like a wearing you down kind of thing it's just just arguing just to argue yeah so uh yeah you know what I tell my daughter um,
0: you know what I tell her I tell her like because I don't want to threaten her and I never want to be mean I don't want to like definitely don't want to like physically threaten her but you do have to Uh get as these kids get older you have to get them to do things you have to get them to go yeah yeah and it's hard because they get wily and they get, do you ever feel that way with me? You're no, you're uh, getting mad at you is like getting mad at a fat rock. (laughs) It's not going to respond to anything. And honestly, let's say that a fat rock did everything you told it to do. Uh Who cares? Uh It's not becoming better. It's It's not improving. (laughs)
1: I don't really think I'm trying to get better. That that's the beauty. No, no, you're not. Everything. Um,
0: (laughs) But I tell her instead. I try to like use vocabulary with her. I say, if you do that, I'm going to become infuriated, and that's what I tell her a lot. And now she's starting to turn that around. Up here, she's like, Papa, if you do this, I shall become infuriated, and it's it's cuter than it sounds. (laughs) But it's she's also fucking trying me, dude. You have any advice?
1: Yeah, I got some good advice. Uh, everyone listening at home should subscribe to the show and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. <laughs> <laughs>